unison reading this morning comes from Psalm 146. It's a precious psalm. There's a lot here. It's a psalm of joy, really. It's a, it's, a, it's a hymn of praise to God for His kingdom and for His current rule and reign and the coming of His kingdom. And especially in contrast to the kingdoms of this world and the reign and the rule of the princes of this world. And what we want to do this morning before we go to prayer is simply uh, make some five observations from this psalm. Uh, five praiseworthy ideas that are presented to us that follow from the truth that God is king, that he rules over all, that his kingdom is present and, and it's, it's coming in power and that God reigns. <clears throat> and so in verse 1 and 2, we notice uh, this first praiseworthy idea, and we can state it like this, because God reigns, he is worthy of all of our praise, because uh, the divine being is our king. In Christ Jesus and in the gospel, we are uh, able and are led to give him praise with all of our being. And you can see the way that this is expressed in verse 1 through 2. Praise the Lord. There's the call to all of us to give praise to him, to exalt his name, to give him all of the glory. Praise the Lord, O my soul. We are called and led by this psalm to praise him with all of our being, with everything that we have within us. We owe God all that we are as creatures and certainly as those who have been redeemed and are considered to be members of his heavenly kingdom. We owe him our very life, our very soul. And we are called on here to give expression to that, that we love him and we are thankful to him for all that he has done for us in his rule and reign and in his kingdom and for giving us the kingdom the New Testament teaches and promises. And so we are called here to praise him with all of our being. Uh, Verse 2, while I live, I will... Praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. We are called to praise the Lord at all times. We are called to praise the Lord to the very end of our earthly lives. We are called to praise the Lord to the very, very ends of eternity and life everlasting. We do know that the Bible teaches us that we have immortal souls. So when the psalmist says that as long as we live, we will give him praise. It's more than just the idea that we'll give him praise very often in this life or into the end of this life. But in fact, we will praise him forever and ever when we are with him in heaven. And so the psalmist is calling us to praise the Lord because God reigns, because he rules. We are uh, uh, called to praise him and we are led by the psalmist to praise him with all that we are, with all of our being and for all time. And that's a very encouraging to think, uh, thing to think about uh, as we go to prayer this morning, as we lift up our hearts in praise to him. The other thing that I would just notice briefly about 1 and 2 that I think will be encouraging to you is that it's individualistic. It's personal. The kingdom has come. God's rule and reign is for you. Notice the psalmist here is he's using the singular. My soul. I will praise. He is my God. And this is true for us because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and applying the gospel. Uh, by the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. So we come to the Lord this morning as men and as women to praise him with our whole being. And then as each of us does this, we come together corporately as a body to do so together and we praise the Lord together. And I just wanted to notice that very briefly. Secondly then, as we go to prayer this morning, the second praiseworthy idea that's presented to us in this psalm is in verse 3 and 4. Because God reigns, we are not to put our trust in princes. We are free from putting our trust in and our hope in the princes and the powers of this age. Of course, we pay them respect. We are to submit to them. 
God has placed these earthly kings and these earthly princes over us for our good and for our well-being, but we are not to put our trust in in them. We are not to look to them for our ultimate hope and our ultimate salvation. This is our temptation. We always have this temptation. We're always struggling with this as creatures of this earth and as members of the civil kingdom. And yet God here liberates us from putting our ultimate trust and our ultimate hope in the kings and the princes of this world. And we're giving reasons why we ought not to put our trust in them. And the first reason is because they cannot save. And this is what we see in verse 3. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man, in whom there is no help. There's no ultimate help in them. And of course we know this the longer that we live, right? There's no help. There's no ultimate salvation in the Republican Party. There's no help or hope or ultimate salvation in the Democrat Party. There's no hope. For America, America is not our Savior. They can't be our Savior. They have no help. They have no real power to save. God's placed them. They have a limited power. We're thankful for them and all that they do for us. But they can't save us. Only the Lord can save us. So we're not to put our trust in princes, in earthly powers, in men. His spirit departs, verse 4. The other reason we're not to do so, they kind of, it's not just that they can't save, but closely related to this idea is that they perish. They don't last. They're temporary. There is a day coming when even America will fall in God's ordination and His plan and in His decree. All nations rise and all nations fall. Every prince that we think that we can put our trust in will only be in office for a temporary, limited amount of time. Even he will eventually die. And when he does, his plans will perish with him. And this is what verse 4 reminds us. His spirit departs. That is, these princes, these sons of men. He returns to the earth, and that very day his plans perish. But the Lord lives forever, and he is our Savior, and his kingdom and his rule and his reign is a kingdom that is forever and ever, and his purposes and his plans for salvation will never come to an end. And so we praise the Lord because we are liberated from putting our trust in earthly princes, and we are free to put our trust in one whose kingdom cannot fail and cannot come to an end. And we give thanks to God. And so then thirdly, in verse 5 through 7, the third praiseworthy idea that's presented to us in this psalm is that because God reigns, those who trust in him are happy or blessed beyond measure. Look at verse 5. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. He doesn't put his trust in the kingdoms of this world. He puts his trust in the Lord and in his kingdom. And God is called the God of Jacob. That is, he's a savior of sinners. That's what it means that God is the God of Jacob. I won't go back over the whole story of Jacob with you. But you remember Jacob was a sinner that God uh, saved graciously and was merciful to. And so the one who trusts in the Lord, who calls the Lord his help, the one who has his hope in the Lord, is the one who is indeed happy. And you can see that pronouncement, that divine, authoritative, biblical pronouncement of blessing and happiness is given to us in verse 5. We can own that for ourselves by trusting in the Lord and his infallible word. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. And why are we so happy? Why are we so blessed? Because our God is the Lord of the whole earth. He's the Lord of heaven and earth and all of the seas. Like we read in verse 6, he made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. The God that we trust in has all power and all wisdom, and all beauty to save us and to do us good. And so we praise Him as the Creator and the All-Powerful One who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything that's in them, and we have a perfect trust and a perfect stay in Him. Secondly, we're happy because He keeps faith forever. (laughs) He keeps truth forever is the way the New King James puts it there. You can see it 
At the end of verse 6, the idea is that God is faithful. He makes commitments for his people and he keeps those commitments. He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He's trustworthy. He's reliable. And we can put our trust in him. He never breaks his promises. He never fails us. And the third reason why we are happy and give him praise is because in his rule, he executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. Now, the idea there is that he accomplishes righteousness for his people. That's, the main, that's what the text is communicating to us. He executes justice. He accomplishes justice for those who are under the heavy burden. That is, God, in the imputation of righteousness in Jesus Christ, provides righteousness for those who are without it, those who come to him and repent and ask for forgiveness. He forgives. He grants them the righteousness of his son, and he accomplishes righteousness for them in that sense. And not only that, but he feeds the hungry. That's a reference, of course, uh, to uh, the idea that he sanctifies us, that he satisfies our hungry souls. That is, those who put our trust in the Lord, we have learned to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to be more like our Savior. We want to be more like our God. We want to be more like our King. We want to be holy. We want to do His will. We want to please Him for all that He's done for us. And God has promised to satisfy that desire. He accomplishes righteousness for His people. So He has all power to rule For our benefit and our well-being, he keeps all of his promises, and he especially keeps, or I should say, accomplishes righteousness for us. And we're thankful, and we give praise to God because he is a true Savior. This is something that the kings of this this world cannot do. They do not have all authority in heaven and earth. And they do not always keep their promises. They don't have the ability to. And they are not able to satisfy our hunger for true righteousness. And God is able to do all three of these things for us. And so we praise the Lord. We praise Him with our whole soul. And we will praise Him forever and ever. The fourth praiseworthy idea that we see in this psalm is that because God reigns, His name is exalted as the one and only Savior. And you'll notice how the psalm transitions there at the end of verse 7. There's this whole list. And each line begins with the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And you can see the Lord there. That term Lord is capitalized, all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, you well know it's a reference to God's Old Testament personal name. It's a reference to his covenant name, the Lord. Jehovah sometimes is the way we translate that into English or Yahweh. It's God's name. It's his personal name. It has many uh, nuances and meanings to it that we can draw out. We can talk about how the Lord is a reference to the idea that it's his covenant name. We can refer to the fact that it's his divine name. It refers to Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, that he's the I am, the great I am, that he's not like his creatures. He's transcendent of over, over all of his creatures. He has those wonderful divine attributes like immutability and impassibility and eternity and, and simplicity and all of those wonderful concepts that are hard to comprehend. And yet we worship God for them. The Lord, but of course, all of those ideas, all of them, whether theological or covenantal, are teaching us that God, the Lord, this name means that He is Savior. If you want to know what the term Lord means, it means that He's Savior. And not just that He's a Savior, but He's the one and the only true Savior. There can be no other Savior besides Him. And this is what we're trying to, to get across, and this is what we're trying to teach when we say that God's a covenant making, covenant keeping God, is that He saves through His covenant. Or when we say that God is immutable, 
A Savior who can change is not a true Savior, is He? Because that means that your salvation might change. It might fail. But God's immutable. He's the Lord. He's the I Am. He's the All-Sufficient. He cannot fail. He's a true Savior. And He's the only Savior. And so when God rules and reigns the way that He does, the passage is, what it's bringing out to us is the exaltation of His name, the Lord. The glory of it. And the ways that He saves His people because of his power, because of his all-sufficiency, because of his unfailing immutability, and so on. And so we get some of these wonderful names of God that are listed for us here, starting in verse 7 and running through verse 9. He's the liberator. He's the sight giver. He's the life bringer. He's the lover and propitiator of his people. He's the preserver of his people. He's the provider and protector of his people. And my favorite name is he's the victor for his people. He's conqueror. But notice these then. Let's go through them just really quickly. Look at the end of verse 7. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. That's to those who are bound by the chains of sin. If you look at Psalm 107, 10 verse, uh, verse 10 through, uh, through 16, it's, an, uh, it's the idea of spiritual liberation. It's the idea of liberation from sin. God is a liberator. He gives freedom to the prisoners. Verse 8, he opens the eyes of the blind. He gives spiritual illumination and enlightenment to those who are in darkness and who are blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The idea there is he gives them life. To be bowed down in the Old Testament scripture means that you are on your deathbed. But God raises those who are on their deathbed. He gives life. He's the life bringer. The Lord loves the righteous. He's a lover and propitiator of his people. He declares them righteous. He grants them righteousness as we've already seen. Those who put their trust in him are declared righteous. So the Lord loves the righteous. He's the lover of his people. The Lord watches over the strangers or the sojourner, the traveler. He is a preserver of his people. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. He's a provider for his people. He's a protector of his people. And then finally, again, my favorite. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down, which is the idea of he lays waste or ruin the way of the wicked. And that, of course, is a reference with an emphasis to their way to sin and to those who will not repent of their sin. The way of the wicked and the wicked who walk in that way, God in the end is going to lay waste. He is going to ruin it. He's going to turn it upside down and trample all over it. It's a picture of God being conqueror and victor over sin. Final victory, total victory, because God is a savior, because he rules and reigns. We have this hope and we can trust in him. So our God is our victory, he's our conqueror over sin, and we have the hope of a life and a world in which there will be no sin, no presence of sin. The remnants of it in our own heart will be laid waste. The sin in the world will be laid waste. Those who refuse to repent of it will be laid waste and cast out. And we ourselves will be preserved to worship and praise God in holiness forever and ever. So then in verse 10, finally, the fifth uh, praiseworthy idea that we can take from this passage that's presented to us here is found in verse 10. Because God reigns, his reign will last forever and ever. And notice how verse 10 puts this. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations is an eternal and an everlasting kingdom. Therefore, praise the 